Amen. Please be seated. You can turn with me in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 11. The text is there also printed for you on your bulletin insert and outline. Hosea 11, a book of 14 chapters. We're moving rapidly to the close. There has been a long road that we have taken as we have studied this book of the prophet Hosea who primarily ministered to the northern kingdom which was about to fall. God was bringing them under his discipline and the book is largely about a prophet warning them to repent, to come to him uh, as their redeemer and the people wouldn't listen and over time uh, God brought them under discipline to ultimately bring a people to himself. Uh, these folks living at this time would not see that direct redemption, but we are heirs of the redemption that would come to the remnant God would bring. Uh, this past weekend, uh, many of the men of the church were part of a, a wonderful retreat. It wasn't a long retreat, but it was a wonderful one. And I, I hear that our youth pastor even led several to the Waffle House until 2 or 3 in the morning. Raise your hand if you went, no, don't do that, because we don't want to know. But I'll, I'll know if you were at the Waffle House at 3 in the morning with Pastor Brian. Great fellowship happened, though. Relationships are strengthened when you have those times together. In fact, that's really what is so stark about this particular chapter, maybe as opposed to some of the others. The other chapters have been uh, first to paint the picture of Hosea in his marriage to an adulterous woman as being an illustration of God's marriage to his people who committed spiritual adultery over and over and over again. Uh, but in the case of Hosea, he did, could not just let her go off to slavery. He had to go redeem her, buy her back from this slavery she was part of. Same way God redeems us by his son, buys us back from our spiritual slavery. That's the picture. But the book lays out in the bulk of it the legal argument against Israel to show that they are in fact committing spiritual adultery. And so chapter after chapter really lines out the different ways. And we spent a difficult chapter last week speaking of how they had given in because of their affluence to idols. Instead of thanking God for this great affluence he had given them, they had bought idols and they had built up idols and altars and pillars to other gods. So it's very legal in tone. But now you come uh, to this chapter where it's entirely relational. And Pastor Keith Gormley, who spoke to us, really tried to, I think, brother, give a brotherly encouragement to us that knowing God isn't just about knowing principles and standards and, and a doctrine about God. Uh, it's about being in relationship to him because he's a relational being. The Trinity, before we were ever created, was in relationship to each other. And so now we have relationships, and God works in multifaceted relations with us. And we see his heart in chapter 11 in a way we have not yet seen it in Hosea as he speaks really as a parent to a wayward child. And it should speak to every one of us here as we hear what Hosea says as God speaks in his word. Let's now hear God's word. I'll read the first 11 verses. Verse 12 rightly should be included with chapter 12, and we'll address it next week. So I'll read 11, 1 through 11 of Hosea. Hear God's word. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, and they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, 
with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we have before us a message of a broken heart, your heart, O God, towards your people. But we do not have a message of broken love. In fact, we have just the opposite, Lord, and we thank you for your steadfast love, for it is unbroken. And Lord, we thank you for its ultimate fulfillment that we find in our Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen. This past Wednesday and then Thursday again, we experienced uh, some of those ominous Kansas days when we started entering the spring and in the tornado season and all the, uh, those storms that crop up so quickly uh, beset us. In fact, Wednesday was just like that, dark, dark clouds, uh, splashes of lightning, hail even came down, wind. Uh, Thursday was similar, but Thursday was different in that uh, the sun started to poke through those clouds. And there's a stark thing that happens in this part of the country. It's really beautiful when you think about it. Uh, there's the darkness, and it's, it's very dark. And it's even green when those hail clouds are coming. And you'll see, though, in the middle of the broad daylight, this happened. It's just the sky gets dark, and then as it's moving off, beams of light start cracking through the darkness. That's what we have in chapter 11 of Hosea. Adam Clark said that beams of mercy break from the clouds just now fraught with vengeance. So all these chapters building up to the sure discipline the people would receive, now those dark clouds as they move, there are beams of light starting to come forth, mercy coming through, a picture of where God is heading with this. The opening of Hosea gives a picture of Hosea's long ministry. Remember the book of Hosea, 14 chapters, happens over a 60-year period. So at the beginning of the book, the country's doing really well. They're affluent. Things are going uh, exceptionally well. They have alliances with other nations that's making them richer. Uh, a lot of comfort, better off even than the southern kingdom of Judah. And so there's a sense of ease. But now Hosea is speaking of the spiritual adultery, and then over time, over his ministry, something he probably repeated over and over and over again, the content of this book, slowly but surely they're starting to fall. And really, it's one of the most atrocious endings of a nation we've ever had on record. With the amount of assassinations that happened towards the end, from the time Hosea's ministry started to the time it ended, and all the kings that would kill each other and try to ascend each other's throne all the way down to the total ending of the northern kingdom, the hands of Assyria. 
still in the midst of all this that was coming, the sure discipline that would arise, verse 8 of 11 speaks regarding the heart of God towards his people. Look at verse 8 of Hosea 11 once more. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? Later it says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. Despite the legal argument I've just given and every right I have to obliterate you, I will not execute my burning anger. Yes, discipline comes. And there's no doubt that the kingdom as a political entity ends. But God does not end his commitment to save a people for himself here. He will continue to honor that. Against the worst backdrop of sin that any of us could imagine, God's gracious love is still revealed. The backdrop of sin for the Israelites was a rejection of God's word, his king, his temple, his nation, his prophets, his call to worship, his commandments. They married enemy nations. They trusted enemy kings over God. They paid tribute to Assyria, a nation that spoke violence against the God, Yahweh. They set up idols over their portion of the promised land. They lived in all sorts of sin given over cultural norms that you can possibly imagine. They were all existent there in the northern kingdom. The worst backdrop of sin you can imagine. As bad as you may think sin is today, it was as bad then in that, part, that portion of time in that little period. As bad as the sin may be in your life against that backdrop, God still can show forth and still does show forth his loving graciousness. Let's look at the passage together because I think you will see pattern for us and paralleled in our own lives, uh, God's gracious love shown. The first four verses give us the rejection of God's kindness on the part of the people. Despite all they've been given and shown, they've still rejected God. Look at verse 1 as God shows this rejection of his kindness. When Israel was a child, I loved him, in verse 1, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now you will recall that God began to form Israel as a nation when he called Abraham in the early part of Genesis. But he grew that nation then through Isaac and Jacob and then providentially bringing Joseph to Egypt. That's where he really started to incubate the nation. That's where at the time of the Exodus, 200 years after Joseph got there, there are over 2 million people in the nation. So now he's incubating this nation. But to be a nation, you really have to have more than just people, don't you? You have to have law and you have to have land. So they had the people, two million people, but they're slaves. They needed law and they needed land. And so miraculously, through Moses, he brings them out of Egypt. His son, it's called in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So he refers to them as his child. His son, this is very important as we move along. He calls his son out of Egypt. Now two million people strong on the brink of Sinai, they receive their law. From there they go on through ups and downs as usual for the people of God, find themselves eventually in the promised land. So now they've got their people, their law and their land. They're the nation of nations under David and Solomon. And then still through the sin of the people, they fall, divide. And then we come to this point in the northern kingdom where they're about to be taken off the map and forgotten as a people forever. Even though they were his child and he loved them and called them out of Egypt, verse 2 says, the more they were called, the more they went away. 
they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Instead of responding with grateful obedience, they responded with spiritual adultery. The response to God's great redemptive act was to turn and worship idols. The more God poured out his grace, it seems the more they responded in turning away. Last week, you remember the first verse of chapter 10. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more its fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Quite the opposite reaction one would expect, but that shows the depth of the sin that's in the heart of man as he walks and turns away from the kindness and grace of God. Hey, this is the same struggle every one of us continues to have. God pours out his blessings, and more often than not, we turn to our own idols, to our own stuff, to our own things, to our own way. Is it not true, if we are honest, that we squander God's kindness in regular painful ways? Last week, in response to the sermon, I received many responses. And by and large, almost 95% were a great blessing to me personally as they were a blessing to those people who shared with me as they considered what God's word said about our response to God's great kindness. We're faced with it again today. But I want to share with you just a little piece that someone, of a letter that someone sent me in reaction. It was so honest and it captured my own heart and I think it captures yours as well. Uh, this person said, Long and many have been the trials in my life over money and possessions. That was the issue. Versus the affections of my heart. I can't count the times that I've been blessed by God only to turn around and build altars to other gods. Many times the Lord has had to chasten me and let me reap the rewards of my own sin. And I grieve over the lost time and opportunities and how, diso- how I dishonored him. I wish I could say that I never struggle with this anymore. But God in his loving and patient ways keeps bringing me along like his little child. It's a beautiful capturing of what I think every one of us, if we're honest, would say would own these words ourselves. But the beauty of those words is that this person comes back to a realization. He's God's child. She's God's child. There's not a worry about God casting off anymore because there's a security that comes from the fulfillment God will give even to this text as we move there. But the honesty that is spoken there about this constant struggle like Paul has in Romans 7 when he says, I know the things I'm supposed to do, but I don't do them. I know grace, but I still do this. We see it over and over and over again in our own lives, and we see it in the lives of God's people in history. God gives a very human picture of his gracious kindness towards his people. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim, again, is a word for Israel. I took them by their arms, but they didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bonds of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws, and I bent down to them and I fed them. It's a funny thing, isn't it, when your kids all of a sudden become self-conscious about changing in front of their parents. I remember when uh, my mom took me to J.C. Penney's to try on a pair of dress pants. I don't know how old I was, maybe 9 or 10, and I did not want her to stay in the dressing room with me when I put the pants on. I'm staying here, and I remember the look on her face, and I understand it now. It's more or less like, oh, brother. And she left, and I changed. But you know what? Think of how foolish that really is. The same person who's seen me since the time I was born, fed me, clothed me, seen me in all manner of embarrassing ways, cleaned my wounds when I fell. All things I'd totally forgotten and had no conscious memory of. 
For that person to have someone say, I don't want you to see me, has to be crazy. Are you serious? I mean, do you have any idea? I mean, this is nothing compared to what I've done for you as seeing you in or whatever it may be. And that's what parents do for their kids, and their kids are totally, they're just not conscious of it. Cute little Catherine is not going to remember this day except for the fact we're going to keep reminding her. But what else happens in this day she's not going to have the same memory of? Basically, her parents are sustaining her life. In fact, until they're four or five, they can't do hardly anything to sustain themselves in a real way. God says, Israel, do you know that I'm the one who healed you when you were hurt? Do you know that I helped you walk? Do you know that I gave you all you need, and yet here you are shaking me off when you could not have even survived if I had not been in your life in this way? That's what he's saying. It's like they had no conscious memory of God tending them, feeding them, dressing them, literally dressed them in the wilderness. Who fed me? Who clothed me? Who taught me to walk? Who took me up into their arms when I fell and scraped my knee? Who cleansed the womb? Israel hurt the heart of God by ignoring all that God had done for them. They rejected his kindness. And unlike a slave master who made the cattle eat with a tight yoke around them, he eases in verse 4 the yoke on their jaws and bent down to them and fed them so they could eat. And now they were rejecting him. Sinning is always dangerous for us. Sin hurts us. God's broken heart does not break his love for us, so he moves to discipline us. Look at verses 5 and 6 as we see God's discipline in reaction to our rejection of his love and kindness. Verse 5 says, They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. As toilsome as Israel's time in Egypt no doubt was, it was time... It was a time of humbling, a time where God broke them down of their individuality and made them a unit that would move up and out of the promised land. And despite their sin that happened short after, uh, they built that, he built that nation up through that time in slavery. Gave them a certain solidarity, a certain identity, a certain joint experience that helped them stay as one as they moved out. He would do it again in a different way, not through Egypt, but Assyria this time. And Assyria would not employ the same slave tactics that Egypt used. They would use exile. They would divide the nation. They would take away their identity. They would strip away any peculiarities about their nationality or ethnicity. And that's how they would do away with nations. And literally it worked because none of us know anyone that belongs to the northern kingdom. They exiled. And God used this as a discipline. It says in verse 6, the sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. Uh, in particular, we know, and one historian says this about Assyria's uh, long standing, it took about 25 years for Assyria to totally take out the northern kingdom and exile everyone. Listen to what one historian says regarding this process. Following the relatively stable and prosperous reign of Jeroboam II, he's the king that was there when Hosea first came on the scene, the northern kingdom of Israel collapsed into near anarchy. Internal turmoil and power struggles combined with a series of assassinations left Israel in no position to cope with the growing Assyrian menace. And as the prophets Amos and Hosea pointed out, spiritual decline and Baal worship were rampant, factors that further weakened national identity and resolve. In the very time that Tiglath-Pileser III was coming to power in Assyria, marking the rebirth of Assyrian, this Assyrian empire and the greatest external threat to the Israelites, 
that they had faced in their time as a kingdom, Israel was actually self-destructing. Then in 740 BC, that Assyrian king began plundering the northern tribes, the nation of Israel itself. He destroyed many cities, brutally killing their inhabitants, and left Israel with only the capital of Samaria intact. But five years later, a new Assyrian king came into Samaria, slaughtered its inhabitants, and destroyed the remainder of the northern kingdom as well. Then just ten years after that, the ten northern tribes ceased to exist as a people. The Israelites who remained in Israel were forcibly mixed with other religious and ethnic groups and became the hated Samaritans of the New Testament. Those who were deported disappeared from history. God brought discipline in a very humbling way to the national political entity called Israel. He never abandoned his children and those he called from the nations, but as an entity, the northern kingdom would lose itself. God disciplines even those who he loves are in the midst of such a group. We know this is the way God works, but it's difficult for us when we're up on, under it. In Deuteronomy, he promises his people long before this time, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So shall you keep the commandments of your Lord, the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. In the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews uses the same idea in almost identical language, and says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, I want to say just a word quickly on discipline because it's so important. The word here in the Hebrew text, in the Hebrews text, which is in Greek, says, Discipline means correction or nurture or instruction. That's the meaning of the word. Discipline literally means an admonishing or a calling of soundness of mi- to soundness of mind, to self-control. That's different, brothers and sisters, than punishment. Punishment means vengeance or penalty. It's punitive, whereas discipline is remedial. Now, the same act of God could happen to a group of people, and it could be punishment for some, those who are not vitally connected to God through Christ. But it's discipline for those who are connected with Christ. The same action, the same tragedy occurs and means different things depending on who the person is and what God intends for it in their life. There's a difference, though, between discipline and punishment. Discipline is instructive and corrective. Punishment is primarily, primarily punitive and retributive. Fatherly discipline is never punitive. God does not punish his children. He disciplines them. All the punishment we rightly deserved was meted out on Christ, on the cross. We no longer are subject to God's wrath in this way, his punitive judgment. We are disciplined by our Father, not punished by him. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But he loves us too much to let us keep sinning. So essentially, if you're going through a trial today, and I can't tell you the details of why you're going through it, it's, it's a trial that God has brought into your life either for instructional or corrective purpose. Instructional meaning it's not something you've done particularly. It's just part of God's providence that he's using to instruct you. I'd say most diseases and ailments fall into this category. Quote-unquote accidents that happen, job situations we're in, provision challenges, relationship issues, a persecution for the cause of Christ. These are things God will bring into our lives to draw us, to instruct us, to make us more dependent on him. But there are some trials that have natural consequences. Certainly this was the case in the northern kingdom as they had given over to spiritual adultery. 
So God then brings oppression to them or brings things in their lives that serve to correct them if they respond correctly. So God brings corrective discipline into their lives. And this is a question that only you can answer or maybe you as a family can answer or just as an individual before the Lord, Lord, I know you brought this into my life, whatever it is, and I know it's from your hand, you love me and you're not punishing me. But Lord, maybe there's a change that has to happen in my life. It may be instructional, God, and I don't see it right away, and it's something you're working in my life to make me depend more on you. Maybe it's corrective, God. Maybe I'm sinning in a way that I just don't see right now. Please show me this. Give me repentance for this. Whatever the case, when God disciplines, he disciplines as a loving father who wants to see his child love him even more and trust in him even more. God then relates to us his gracious love in verses 7 through 9. Look there in the passage with me. Verse 7, my people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. So we see that his initial reaction to the first cries of, for help in Israel when Assyria starts to oppress is calling out to God. Now they had done this cycle many, many times. And at this juncture, God says, I will not raise them up. Not this time. They will meet this discipline in its fullest sense. Initial response certainly came forth from the people, but God chose at this moment to let the discipline have its course. Verse 8, as he looks upon this process, you might say, in human terms, God says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Now, Adma and Zeboim are two little-known suburbs of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're really little known now because they were taken down with the same judgment Sodom and Gomorrah had. Uh, they were basically, in the ancient cities, you would have the cities with walls generally, and there would be little cities outside of the walls. In the case of a siege, they would run inside the walls, those who were living outside. And these two little townships were part of the Sodom and Gomorrah judgment that God brought. And so he's saying, I don't want to treat you like that, where they were part of the judgment of these cities. How can I do this? Can I treat you like this? It's like God is questioning his motives for doing it. Now, honestly, and we know there's nothing wrong or sinful with his motives. He's just expressing in human terms this relationship he has with his people and what it means to him. In the second part of verse 8, look what it says. God says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. What a picture that God is giving of himself towards us. This is God using the prophet to say what he feels like. Listen, God has emotions. He just has perfect, righteous balance of those emotions. He's not without passions in the sense he's without emotion. He's just not given over to imbalanced passion like we are. And this expression of his heart for his people is profound. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Verse 9, he says, it's like in light of thinking of this, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. I've let this happen. This is the end of it. I'm not going to bring further judgment now. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. In other words, I am not like man who is given into his passions, who's given into sinful emotion. I am God. I'm the Holy One. And the Holy One has made a promise to call a people to himself. I made the promise to Abraham, and I'm manifesting it through time. I'm using the nation of Israel at this time, but eventually it's going to be made open through my son. I'm going to keep my promise. The Holy One is not like man. I will not destroy, even though I feel like it, or I should feel like it if I were man. I'm not man. I'm the Holy One, and so I will continue my promise. I will not utterly obliterate a people. 
They will lose their national identity. They will be disciplined, but I will still bring forth my people, even through this trial. His holiness really becomes foundational to his love. His holiness relates to the promises that he will keep. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Verse 10 and verse 11 really turn the corner for us as the beams come through the dark clouds in a bright way as you have a picture of the restoration that would come ultimately. Verse 10 and then verse 11. Then they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, from doves from Assyria. In other words, from all directions as he roars... There will be a statement of judgment. There will be a clarity of the king, but the people who are his will come. His children shall come trembling. It no longer uses the same words uh, of forming a nation. It's as the lion roars, they'll come. They will respond to the roar of the king with no question. What a picture of ultimate restoration. Now, I want you to look back at verse 1 again. So we can clearly understand what Hosea, the picture Hosea is picturing. In other words, how is this going to be fulfilled? We know the line of the tribe of Judah would come. Well, how does this relate? Well, verse 1 says, again, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 2. This is a profound fulfillment of this passage and gives us clarity on how God would bring final restoration. Matthew chapter 2. Matthew being the first book in the New Testament, the second chapter, shortly after Jesus has been born to Mary, there's the threat of Herod to kill the children, the firstborn sons. Matthew 2 verse 13, please pay close attention to what is said. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child, who is Jesus, and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Verse 14 says, And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. So they go to Egypt, away from Bethlehem, now to Egypt from Jerusalem, and now they're over in Egypt. Look at verse 15. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The fulfillment of the final restoration is Christ. Who will be restored? Those who are united to Christ. God looks at his son with utter delight. His son didn't sacrifice to the Baals. He sacrificed himself for our sins. His son did not give over to spiritual adultery. He was purely and totally in love with God the Father to do his will. And that son gives himself. And that son is the the son that God calls out and loves and never forsakes and fully glorifies in all the possible ways he can glorify one. And all those who are united to him share in that. If you know Christ, you're united to Christ. God never looks at you again alone. You're in Christ. Final restoration for this sin we, besets us is in our Savior. Think of what, G, what God thinks of Jesus. In Matthew 16, Matthew 
later in the book of Matthew from where we are now, and Jesus was baptized. Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That's much different than the Son Israel was, or the Son any of us are outside of Christ. But Christ, he's the Son I'm well pleased with. There's nothing to be displeased with with Jesus. God the Father says of his Son, When Jesus rises again and takes his place in the throne, the statement from Philippians describes it. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in the heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You want security today, it's got to be in Christ. Restoration from our sin is in Christ, only Christ. This is the beauty, and I close with this, of John chapter 3, verse 31 through 35. He who comes from above is above all, speaking of Jesus who had come. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all and bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. But whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Now listen closely to John 3, 34 and 35. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Are you in Christ today? That's our hope. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this sign given by the prophet through the life of Hosea, but the clear fulfillment that we have in Christ. It's so hopeless to see a people given grace, falling, given grace, falling. It's me. But yet, ultimately, when the final, the the ultimate covenant is made with the one who does not break it, Christ, those united, me united to Jesus, Lord, thank you for security that comes from that, the restoration that comes from that, and the ultimate glory that we await in heaven with you. Lord God, I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would give them great encouragement today that they belong to you. You are their children. And Lord, as they struggle, as we struggle with our sin, may we be drawn all the closer to Christ in his utter sufficiency. And that through that trust, through that faith, Lord, you would give us victory over sin now. Give us obedience, Lord, we pray, as your children. I pray, Lord, that you would just greatly, greatly encourage my brothers and sisters today as they learn to love Jesus even more today. In Christ's name, amen. Let's sing together a song that reminds us of the bread of life given to us, but also prepares us for the Lord's table. 146, let's stand and sing verse 1 and verse 2.